Uh, hi, my name's Charlie. I'm one of the, uh, uh, the ministers here, and it's great to be with you this morning. Um, have you ever had one of those experiences that made you refocus, to, to rethink your priorities in life? I guess there are various opportunities through life that hit each of us where we have a moment where we think, actually, what's really important to us? It could be the birth of a baby. I know for many people it can be the death of a parent. Perhaps a difficult diagnosis or a redundancy, an enforced change of job, an enforced change of direction. Or how about a global pandemic? Uh, Justin Smith is a lecturer in history and philosophy at the University of Paris. And he was writing a book on the evils of the internet when coronavirus struck. Um, and the, he found, suddenly found the only way that he could communicate was through the internet. He says he had to rechange and restructure some of the opening chapters of his book. But in a recent article in The Guardian, he wrote this, speaking about this time of pandemic. There is a liberation in this suspension of more or less everything. Any fashion, sensibility, ideology, set of priorities, worldview or hobby that you acquired prior to March 2020 and that may have by then started to seem to you cumbersome, dull or inauthentic, you are no longer beholden to it. You can cast it off entirely and no one will care. Not likely, no one will notice. I know several people who've done that this year. This time of pandemic, this time of lockdown has forced them to refocus and reprioritize on things that were important in their lives. And some of the stuff that they were worried and anxious about before has just gone. Now, I know I'm not playing down the difficulty of this time and the the, 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 the terrible impact that it's having on us as a global community. But within that, there have been opportunities for many of us to find out and focus on what is really important to life and what matters. And the same was true for Paul with his prison time, his time in prison in Ephesus. As you know, we're following um, Tom Wright's book, Paul, A Biography, and in it he takes the passages from Acts, the narrative of Paul's story, and some of Paul's letters and tries to piece together a biographical story of Paul the Apostle. And within it, you can certainly discern that there is, there is pre-prison Paul, and then there is a period of maybe two, three years that he spends in prison in Ephesus, and there is post-prison Paul perhaps more aware of his mortality and certainly refocused on what is important in life. So as we're trying to put Paul's life in context, let's quickly recap our way through it. Born Saul of Tarsus, we think in around about 5 AD. He's converted to Christianity on the road to Damascus. He was previously a, a zealous Pharisee for the faith of his fathers. And he's converted to Christianity in around 33 AD on the road to Damascus. He takes 10 years in the wilderness, getting his thoughts straight, getting his, his, his idea and his thinking in a row and, and growing into his new faith. And then he embarks on three missionary journeys. We've been looking at those over the last few months. And interspersed with that, he writes letters to the churches that he's planted. The letter to the Galatians, the letter to the church in Thessalonica, 
and 1 Corinthians. And here we have the first half of Paul's life, pre-prison Paul. By the time he gets here, he's about 48 years old. It's the same age as I am today. And then there is imprisonment in Ephesus in around 53 AD. A difficult time in his life, undoubtedly, but a time when he wrote those fantastic letters to the Philippians, to Philemon, to Colossians and Ephesians. And Andy looked at a couple of passages of those last week. Colossians 1 and Philippians 2, perhaps some of the greatest, most inspiring writing in the New Testament, written from a prison cell. And then in around 56, he's released from prison. And we have post-prison Paul. His letter to two, his letter to the his second letter to the Corinthians, then his great theological work of Romans, letters to his friends Timothy and Titus, till finally he dies in around about sixty four A.D. So that's a bit of the overview of Paul. And today we meet Paul on the other side of prison, writing his letter to his second letter to the Corinthians. And let's remember the context that some of this letter is written in. There have been trouble in Corinth. The church is fractious. It's breaking apart. There's personal rejection of Paul by the church. And undoubtedly, he is recovering from a period of imprisonment. Two, maybe three years in a Roman prison would take a significant toll on you as an individual, physically, mentally, We meet Paul in the first six chapters of 2 Corinthians, talking about his affliction, his anxiety, talking about forgiveness and reconciliation. We perhaps have him working through his identity after this imprisonment and what it means for him to be an apostle. And at the end of this section of 2 Corinthians, at the end in chapters 5 and 6, we have today's reading. A reading that Tom Wright describes as one of his most characteristic and central statements of what his lifelong vocation really meant. This, in his own words, is what made him the person he was. So if we're looking to explore the person of Paul, perhaps looking at his own words about what he saw his vocation as is an important place to visit. It's an important statement to look at. Now, I have to say, Sarah, you did very well with the reading. Thank you, because it's not easy. In fact, it's a very difficult reading in the NIV. And often, perhaps, if you find a reading like that difficult, it's useful to look at a paraphrase, a paraphrased version of the Bible. There are some good ones out there. I know the, 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 the paraphrase by J.B. Phillips was popular for a long time. There's the New Living Translation. But there's also my personal favourite, The Message, by Eugene Peterson. And I think Peterson does just such a fantastic job at bringing this passage to life for us. It is no light thing to know that we'll one day stand in that place of judgment. That's why we work urgently with everyone we meet to get them ready to face God. God alone knows how well we do this, but I hope you realise how much and how deeply we care. We are not saying this to make ourselves look good to you. We just thought it would make you feel good, 
proud even that we are on your side and not just nice to your face as many people are. Well, if I acted crazy, I did it for God. If I acted overly seriously, I did it for you. Christ's love has moved me to such extremes. His love has the first and last word in everything we do. Our firm decision is to work from this focused centre. One man died for everyone. That puts everyone in the same boat. He included everyone in his death so that everyone could also be included in his life. A resurrection life. A far better life than people ever lived on their own. Because of this decision, we don't evaluate people by what they have or how they look. We looked at the Messiah that way once and we got it all wrong, as you know. We certainly don't look at him that way anymore. Now we look inside at what we see and what we see is that anyone united with the Messiah gets a fresh start is created new. The old life is gone, a new life burgeons. Look at it. All this comes from the God who settled the relationship between us and him and has called us to settle relationships with each other. God put the world square with himself through the Messiah, giving the world a fresh start by offering forgiveness of sins. God has given us the task of telling everyone what he is doing. We are Christ's representatives. God uses us to persuade men and women to drop their differences and enter into God's work of making things right between them. We're speaking for Christ himself now. Become friends with God. He's already a friend with you. See what I mean? What a fantastic job Peterson has done at rendering that passage. In fact, if you've got a copy of the message, it is well worth reading that again at some other time. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I've just picked out a few lines. Um, we work urgently with everyone to get them ready to face God. Christ's love has the first and last word in everything that we do. He included everyone in his death so that everyone could be included in his life, a statement of inclusion. Everyone gets a fresh start, is created new. The old life is gone. New life virgins. God calls us to settle our relationships with each other and finally become friends with God as he is already a friend with you. If those were Paul's values, if that's a statement of what it means to be an apostle, what a fantastic set of values that is. Uh, you know, we have done a set of values as a church. You know them well. And we're about to have them painted on the wall in our sanctuary as part of the refurbishment. But have you ever done personal values? Have you ever sat down and thought about what it is that's your reason for being? What motivates you to do the things you are doing? Uh, the Japanese have a word for this process or something similar to it. It's called Aikigai. 
And it's how you find your purpose and reason in life. And they suggest this. At the top there is what you love doing. Then over to the right is all the things that the world needs. Over to the left is that which you are good at. And on the bottom is that which you can be paid for. And if you are one of those fortunate people who can live in that intersection of all those four things, you have found your Aikigai. There are places where you might have found your passion, your mission, your vocation or your profession. But when you're able to do what you love, if it's something the world needs, if you're good at it and if you can get paid for it, well, there you have it. You have found what the Japanese call your Aikigai. It's a fantastic idea. I think Paul had found his Aikigai in his role as an apostle. Maybe I could challenge you this week to have a think about that yourself. Where would that exist for you? Where are you on this picture? So anyway, on with Paul. There's one other passage I want to look at this morning before we leave 2 Corinthians. And it starts at the beginning of 2 Corinthians chapter 7, where it's as if the, the clouds are gone and the sun has come out. There is a real discernible change in Paul's mood at the beginning of chapter 7. And why is it? Well, it's because Titus has come to him with news from the Corinthian church. He tells Paul that the Corinthians are appalled at how badly they've treated him and they're falling over themselves to apologise. They're doing everything they can to put things right between the Corinthian church and Paul. And it's as if a burden has been lifted off his shoulders. The God who consoles the downcast consoled us by the arrival of Titus. In this we find comfort. In addition to our own consolation, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus. These the words of celebration. This burden that Paul has been carrying has been lifted and it really changes noticeably in chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians. But there is one passage before we end today that I want to go on to look at. Wright says that with, 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 with Titus's news, he can get down to business of a very different nature, very di- in a di- very different frame of mind. And all of this precipitates one of the finest and indeed funniest flights of rhetoric anywhere in the New Testament. Now, to understand why this passage is funny, you have to understand a little bit about ancient Roman culture. Ancient Roman culture was as obsessed with celebrity and social status as we are. In fact, those who've achieved a high social standing would have their successes carved into stone for all to see. It was called their cursus honorum. It's an ancient Roman idea where all of your achievements would literally be carved into stone tablets and placed somewhere prominent so everyone knew how great you were. Your military conquests, your roles in society, your business acumen, it was all there. This is, your, this is how great you are for the world to see. And often, on your cursus honorum, if you were a wealthy Roman leader or citizen, you would include your military victories. And no military accolade came higher than the Corona Moralis. The Corona Moralis was, was an award you were given, a kind of Victoria Cross of Roman culture. And it was given to the individual who'd managed to be the first over the wall into a besieged city. The way you do this is you grab a ladder and you run at the city walls. 
you throw the ladder up, you climb up the ladder, and you're over the top. And it killed nearly everyone who tried it. It was just suicide to attempt it. Hardly anyone made it over the wall. But if you were the first person to make it over the wall, and you would swear an oath to that fact, and you could provide a witness, then you were honoured with the corona moralis, this great reward from the Roman Empire for being the first over the wall. So remember those two things. Because one of the issues the Corinthian church had with Paul is that he wasn't, he wasn't flashy enough. He wasn't a good enough public speaker. He didn't have an impressive CV. They wanted someone who wore gold spangly suits and a decent hairpiece. You know, that he was not the flashy preacher that they wanted. So Paul, in, this chap, in, in these verses in 2 Corinthians 11, sets out his corona moralis. And remember, this is with his tongue firmly planted in his cheek. Are they servants of the Messiah? These are these flashy preachers you hear about. I've worked harder, been in prison more often, been meet, beaten more times than I can count, and I've often been close to death. Five times I've had the Jewish beating, 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I was adrift in the sea for a night and a day. I've been constantly travelling, facing dangers from rivers, dangers from brigands, dangers from my own people, dangers from foreigners, dangers in the town, dangers in the countryside, dangers at sea and dangers from false believers. I've toiled and laboured, I've burnt the candle at both ends, I've been hungry and thirsty, I've gone without food altogether, and I've been cold and naked. If I must boast, I will boast of my weaknesses. God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. There's his oath, and there's his witness. In Damascus, King Artus, the local ruler was, ruler, was guarding the city of Damascus so that he could capture me. But I was let down in a basket through a window and over the wall I escaped his clutches. Do you see what Paul is doing there? He's reciting his corona moralis. Not these flashy achievements of all these so-called successful, wealthy celebrities... He has served his Lord and Saviour. He's lived out his values. And okay, it's cost him, but that is his reward. That is his role of honour. And here is his, he's to claim the Victoria Cross. He was the first one over the wall, but running away. Our pre-COVID world, and possibly our post-COVID world, we'll see, is utterly obsessed with wealth and celebrity. We want people to be flashy and drive the right cars, and we, we celebrate them in our newspapers and on our television screens, in our magazines. Our world was full of boastful men who like to boast of their achievements and all it is that they've done in the world. I really hope and pray that this pandemic will be a time of refocusing for all of us. A time of remembering our priorities, a bit like prison did for Paul, reminding us what is really important. If you remember back to March and April, 
It taught us really clearly the value of key workers, of nurses, of doctors, of NHS cleaners, of care workers, of refuse collectors, of shopkeepers and of farmers. You know, as we roll out a vaccine, I don't think we should rush to get back to everything because some of the things were not worth rushing back to. And it is worth us trying to remember some of the things that this experience has taught us as we go forward. As Henri Nouwen taught us, you are not what you do. You are not what you have. You are not what others think of you. You are a beloved child of God. Perhaps our obsession with status, with wealth, with celebrity. Maybe we should take a leaf out of Paul's book and with our tongue firmly planted in our cheek, try to do our best to reject some of that as we focus on what is really important in life. Friends, as a community, as a planet, as an individual, as a people, we have a chance to refocus and I really hope and pray this vaccine is successful and it gets rolled out and is given to the people in the most need first and that it helps us to return to gathering together and seeing our family and friends. But I hope this experience also gives us a chance to think about what's really important in our lives. What are our values? What shape us? What are we passionate about? Are we going to spend the next 30, 40 years of our life chasing after Vapour of celebrity or wealth? Or are we going to spend it on the things that really matter? Letting people know that they are a beloved child of the living God, valued and of infinite worth. Let's pray together. Father God, um, we thank you for those values that Paul articulates in his statement of what he's called to do. Lord, help us as we emerge from this time to think about our values. Our values as Christians, as, as Christ followers. To think about those things that are important to us and reorientate and refocus our lives back on the things that matter. Lord, so much of the world around us chases, chases vapour. Help us to give ourselves to those things that matter, those things that are important. Our loved ones, our families, our community. And telling the world that they are beloved of God and of infinite value. In Jesus' name. Amen.